Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new Disney animated film, Ralph Breaks the Internet. We'll also be talking about the new uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen film, uh, Netflix exclusive, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. We're going to have a conversation about prequelitis and what happens when a creator is too attached to their original work and won't let it go in the light of uh, the new Fantastic Beast film, which we talked about last week. But first, we need to get to the news and a first story, which... I'm very pleased that you, you left in the news because I added this because I was appalled and, and I wanted to see what you thought about it. <laughs> Venom, the comic book film Venom, just passed Wonder Woman at the worldwide box office and there's one big reason it's continued to dominate. Venom has made over $800 million worldwide. Yeah, we're Venom. coming up on the big B, the big billion. Yeah, we're coming up on the big B and it's stunning. It just pulled in another 21 million internationally last weekend. It is now past Wonder Woman. This is this is really impressive and it and it doesn't seem to be slowing down a whole lot. Where it's making the most of its money is in China where it made 205 million dollars. That's that's a quarter of of where it's at right now. Andy, any immediate thoughts on this before I spin off into an absurd rant? <laughs> well, it's interesting in the article where we found this that uh, they mentioned that monster movies are really huge in China. And so that's part of the reason that Venom is so successful because Venom is this titular comic book monster. Sure. Uh, and they also, I noticed, this is going to sound goofy, but I went, I went looking into this, really. I wanted to know. I found ads uh, that were made in China that are like really cute, animated kind of looking things like an ad for like a stuffed animal but it's venom and he's oh, wow. like he's like a cutesy version and over there like and maybe i'm maybe i'm just getting trolled or something but over there there's a little bit of this element of like oh he's like an anti like they they love the anti-hero thing he's like yeah. an underdog and he's he's misunderstood and he's got a, he's got a good <laughs> heart inside you know despite being this big black evil monster they're like super into it it's really wild. Venom is like really taken off over there. Wow. I, I, I go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> well, I, I think what, what's cool is, I mean, obviously there's going to be a sequel um, that's already planned for October, 2020. And, and what I look forward to is, you know, the first Venom was, it was okay. You know, it was kind of middle of the road had uh, it definitely got better the longer it went. Uh, but it wasn't like the best movie. But now that it's been so successful, they're going to put more money behind it. It's going to have better writing, better you know, better story. You know, hopefully we'll get a much better sequel from this. Man, I, I certainly hope so. I, I wasn't super pleased with Venom, but I mean, it, it really is stunning at this point. It has beat every. Oh, I think every DC movie. Uh, in the DCEU currently, it's beat most of the Marvel films. It has beat Guardians of the Galaxy. Deadpool are behind Venom now. It's truly stunning how much money this movie has made. And I, I don't know whether I should chalk it up to uh, just really clever advertising or like a different market or what. But either way, America's getting another Venom movie. And I don't know what yes. that'll mean. You're, you're being optimistic. You hope that, yeah, it's better writing, better CGI, better story. Uh, I, that That's the optimistic approach. I'm thinking it's going to be just more of a cash-in. Like, because this one sure. already felt a little loose. But... I guess we'll see. Only time will tell. Man, foreign foreign markets are a really incredible thing, aren't they? Yeah, and, and it's amazing because the film didn't, I mean, it didn't pander to China like the way a, a number of films do where they, they no. will specifically shoot some things in Shanghai or, or whatever to uh, kind of get in that market. I mean, it, it's a pretty Americanized film. Black Panther comes to mind with scenes shot in, in a Asian yes. places. Korea, I think. Uh, our next story... Um, Margot Robbie reveals the full Birds of Prey title, The Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Quite the subtitle. And I realize yes. this is more comic book news, but this is where we're at in film. I'm sorry. We're all sorry. It's fine. The uh, <laughs> Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Andy, what can you tell me about this? Uh, so there's a lot going on here. Uh, one of the things is that this is kind of a... Uh, uh, a parody or mocking of Birdman uh, from 2011, 2013. Very much so, yes. Because um, that was Birdman, and then I forget the subtitle. Uh, or the un the unexpected virtue of ignorance. Exactly. So th that's yeah. part of it, but also, and this is more comic book news, which I'm now behind on. Um, but uh, but it refers to um, Harley Quinn in the comics in 2016 is now not in the relationship with the Joker. 
And that that's a, a pretty big deal because as kind of fun and as kind of cutesy as their relationship it was, it's actually really kind of abusive and kind of problematic. Yeah, it's kind of... <laughs> about to say it's a beautiful thing in that way but it is like it it's it's truly a, a really fascinating relationship in comic books it hasn't has, i didn't see, i didn't see suicide squad so maybe i'm above my head on this one but it hasn't quite come across in film i don't think like how how twisted their relationship is no and i was really hoping suicide squad would kind of address that i thought it was a perfect opportunity to you know, bring up a serious issue like domestic violence and kind of talk about that through through comics. And that's part of the beauty of what we can do with film and through fantasy characters. We can actually talk about serious real-life issues. But it did... Sure. <laughs> sure. I- I'm interested to see what this means for the movie. Like, clearly, they're... I don't know. When, when I first saw Birds of Prey, I thought, wow, that's kind of clever. Like, that's pulling back from just being Harley Quinn. You're trying to kind of brand it a thing. But when you stick this on the end, it seems like it's just I don't know. Yeah, it's spin, Harley spinning Quinn in the face of that. Friends. It's yeah. By the way, this is this is a Harley Quinn movie. Yeah, like just very straight up, uh, which is great. Harley Quinn was one of the best parts of Suicide Squad. Or so I heard, because as I mentioned, I didn't see it. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Was it, do you, would you agree? Do you, do you think this is a good move, a bad move? I mean, like you said, it definitely makes it feel more like the Harley Quinn show with some with some other randos uh so that's kind of disappointing but at the same time harley quinn is an incredibly popular character i mean i didn't expect her first on-screen uh presence to really take off like it did i didn't think her character was particularly well done in suicide squad um but everyone i mean it's it's it is a huge character and they're doing like four movies um based on her so oh wow you know, with like, because there's the Joker and Harley movie, there's this one, and then there's like Suicide Squad 2. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Well, we'll keep you posted either way, I guess. Uh, Birds of Prey is set to come out in 2019, so stay tuned. Uh, the last story we have more box office stuff. I know, kind of a bummer, but it was a slow week at the movies. Uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet is the second highest Thanksgiving opening ever, which we haven't gotten into our review yet, and we'll get to shortly. <laughs> But for what it's worth, uh, Andy, what do you think of these numbers? I mean, they're really impressive. So it made uh, over eighty million, and and it was approaching the the champion of this uh, time slot, which is Frozen. Um, so those are really imp- impressive numbers uh, to to get that high. And I mean, and yes, it is a five day weekend because it's the Thanksgiving holiday, but um, it's still really impressive. Yeah, it really is. Um, color me impressed, honestly. Uh, it's it's not that I didn't have faith in in Ralph breaks the internet. I should, uh, man, I really want to call it Wreck It Ralph too, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, I, I I it's not that I didn't have faith in it. It's that the first one was a very niche audience, video games, and and coming off of that, the sequel to that in Thanksgiving, I, I just figured you know it'll do okay. It shouldn't be too great, but man. It, Hell hath no fury like a bunch of parents with little kids that won't shut up <laughs> it, it, around the yeah. holidays. Like, because they will take them to see the movies. And, and that's not that much of a surprise. The busiest day at any theater in America is Christmas Day, the holiday. Uh, so Thanksgiving Day or other holidays, also tremendous days. So this isn't that surprising. Um, but either way, like, I'm still with the Grinch out, considering a holiday that is, I've, you know, and that's what Illumination Entertainment or Blue Sky, either way. Right. Uh, just a little surprising, I guess, that it's doing as well as it is. I thought it'd do well. I didn't think it'd do this well. Yeah, and the Grinch is still up there, uh, but it also came out a couple of weeks ago, so it's it's you know it's got a little bit of time on, on its you know on its side as well. Mm. This also comes with the news of Creed Two, sequel to Creed, of course, which knocked out thirty five million over the weekend, and that came out a week ago, right? Am I? Do I have that uh, wrong? No, last week. That same as, as Ralph breaks the internet. Okay. Same yeah, thing. I mean that's not bad. That's at fifty five million now. So not not Ralph numbers, but hey, like for a for for a cheeky adult film that comes out around then, like it's doing it's doing pretty well. So calling me impressed, I guess. Two sequels, and here's where we're at. We yeah. truly live in, in an age of, of of sequels and prequels and building on what came before. Uh, any any other things in news before we move on, Andy? What do you think? No, I think I'm ready. All right. Well, then I have agreed to take the summary for our first film, Speak of the Devil. The movie is Disney's Ralph Breaks the Internet. Three, two, one, go! I had to say the things around the 
Way to go, kid. One second, I'm having the time of my life. The next thing I know, my game is just... Kid! Gone. So the summary for Ralph Breaks the Internet starts out easy enough. It is a sequel to Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, Disney decided not to call it Wreck-It Ralph 2. We should talk about that towards the end of our conversation because I want to focus on the movie proper so, now. Uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2, sorry, Ralph Breaks the Internet, picks up right where the first <laughs> one left off. Uh, uh, Ralph of the game Wreck-It Ralph. And and somebody from this game Sugar Rush. God, I don't remember her name now. Vanellope. Vanellope from Sugar Rush uh, uh, are, are hanging out in, in Litwick's Arcade uh, in between games and having a great time and having root beers at Tapper's Bar. And they, they ultimately decide, uh, you know what, this isn't quite scratching the itch. We, we need to do a little bit more. And that's when a Wi-Fi router gets plugged in by Mr. Litwick trying to move the arcade to the 21st century. The internet gets turned on and they're suddenly able to access a whole other realm of, of imagination and possibilities that only Disney can provide in, in a fun, family-friendly way. That is Ralph Breaks the Internet. Uh, it's pretty simple, uh, but it, it gets pretty complex, actually, towards the end. And I'm not sure if that's to its favor or to its detriment, and I want to dig into it. Andy, what did you think of Ralph Breaks the Internet? So first off, I'm a huge fan of the first one. Um, I was a tremendous fan of the first one. Yeah, I, I'm a huge gamer, as are you. And, you know, all, all the gaming stuff uh, was really cool in the first film. And just the relationship that Ralph and Vanellope strike up, like their friendship is really endearing. And the, the conflict and thing is, is really relatable. So I really enjoyed the first one and had high hopes for this one. And I was really disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, yeah, so, uh, where to start? So, it, this film just seemed like it was so much of, it's, it's a big pop culture reference. There's a million pop culture references and internet references and internet memes, and I feel like that's what, what the movie's mostly about. It's like, hey, here's a pop culture reference, here's another reference, and here's another reference, and we, we lose sight of, like, conflict and plot, and it, it just wasn't very enjoyable. I got really bored about halfway through, and I was like, "Oh man, when's this going to be over?" Um, and so it's that's why it's surprising me that it made so much money. But um, you know, I guess everyone just went and saw it, and you know, it relies too heavily on the pop culture stuff. There's this, I mean, it's a pretty entertaining scene with all the Disney princesses that I think, or princesses that <laughs> that people have seen, um, and that stuff is funny, but it's. Again, it's just like a it's a gimmick, it's a gag, and I feel like this whole film is just one giant gimmick af after another. Um, so yeah, I was kind of disappointed by it. Right, you're referring before I dig into it. You're referring to the scene in the trailer where all the Disney princesses are hanging out with Vanellope and that that that, that whole bit. Yeah, which, yeah. Gets, which is a good bit to be fair. Um, you're right in a lot of ways. Uh, Wreck It Ralph was a very niche film for a niche audience. It was video games and there were a bajillion references. I, I can still go back and watch it and there are little things I didn't notice in there from video game history. Like, it's huge. This movie has like a third of the video game references and has traded everything out for internet stuff, for yeah. an Amazon logo in the background and a, a, a heavy helping of eBay, which I guess Jeff, Be Jeff Bezos is like just didn't want to roll with Disney. I don't know what his deal was. But I was like, why is eBay getting the spotlight here? Google... YouTube's in there a little bit. There, there's a Snap, ton yeah. of, yeah. And there's a ton of world building in, in the internet. And the way the world is built up in Wreck-It Ralph is great. And the way the characters play off each other is a lot of fun. And like the references are, are, are really well done, just like the Disney princess thing. But ultimately, what strings it all together, the plot, gets too complicated and sags in the middle. And, and that's why it ends up boring in, in the middle part of it. But I, I want to... I want to start off, uh, I think, in the best place. Let's talk about the way the world is put together, the world building. The way Disney put together the internet in this movie. How do you, how do you visualize the internet? A lot of movies struggle with it. This yeah. one does it. Uh, do you want to just give a brief rundown of, of what the internet looks like and how it kind of functions in this world? I can do it if you... I know I'm kind of oh, putting sure. you on the spot, no, but yeah. No, um, so when we get there, you know, they take these tubes to, you know, what what is essentially a server. Um, right. And they get to the world and the, and there's lots of avatars and they're kind of... when You know, when they click a link, they, they get... In, a ship appears and they just jet off to, to wherever. To another know, the, website, yeah. R right. There's uh, what, what is kind of like a librarian who's the, the search engine... Uh, the, the manifestation of that knows more, which yeah. is, is is the first of many examples in which Google is in this movie, 
But they didn't use it. They made up a website for a search engine, which was odd, but that's yeah. something. Um, yeah, so, so they essentially anthropo- anthropomorphized different aspects of the internet. Uh, it, right. it deco- almost like a, like a train station or like some sort of travel thing. Yeah, it, it's turned into like a large city. And for what it's worth, like just like the first one and, and the idea of the arcade all being connected by like a power hub where you go through outlets to get different games, like works really well. Like very effective, very, very visual. I understand it. Like if you're going to make the internet a place, like I, I get the way you did it. It, it, it works really, really well. Uh, the characters uh, I thought were all great. The return of, of course, John C. Riley as Wreck It Ralph and and Vanellope, uh, Sarah Silverman are great. You get you get Jane Lynch back, uh, recurring in her role. Uh, uh, Jack McBrayer back yeah. as as, yeah. as Fix It Felix. They're hardly in the movie, but I guess I appreciated that they were in there. They're little callbacks to yeah. kind of the original. I mean, they were much bigger characters in the first movie, so I was yeah I was a little disappointed they didn't have more screen time. Right, and 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 they're kind of spaces are exchanged for characters like shank played by gal gadot who um I, this is gonna sound horrible i definitely thought it was sofia vergara for like most right. of the movie which i realize <laughs> is because i'm stere- stereotyping and i shouldn't do that but i didn't know I, I i i had trouble telling um who i really enjoyed uh, uh alan tudyk makes a return not not as king candy but as another character uh knows more actually he right. was great um that's all I can remember. Uh, what else you got? Characters and world building. What's what's next? You want to dig yeah. in a plot? Is that the next step? Um, well, a couple other characters. Um, Bill Hader p- plays a pop-up name, uh, J.P. Spamley, uh, which is pretty, pretty entertaining. Oh, I didn't know that was Bill Hader. That's great. Yeah, and, and there's several other cameos. Uh, Gal Gadot's character, Shank, is kind of the big new person, and that, that does kind of lead into the plot where uh, John C. Riley or Wreck-It Ralph begins to be a little bit jealous of Vanellope's new friend because uh, Shank is a... She plays this dangerous racing game. She's got a hot, flashy car. Slaughter you know, race. Yeah. yeah so There's a very fun song attached to it. <laughs> uh, they, they play... Uh, you know, so they begin to bond, Vanellope and Shank bond over this game and their love for racing, and John C. Riley's character begins to be uh, real jealous of, of their friendship. Right, and, and this... This kind of compounds, uh, uh, essentially, I left this out of the plot description, but the main characters are trying to raise enough money to to get a, a new steering wheel for the game, Sugar Rush, which is Vanellope's game. And if they don't get it, uh, the game's going to be hauled off, and, and right. Vanellope will have no game, which is obviously not going to work for her. Um, but Vanellope starts to realize, like, hey, this game Slaughter Race is pretty cool, too, and this cool this, this chick, Shank, is really neat. And and Ralph just wants to go back to the arcade and like go go back to doing his old thing and and Penelope kind of digs the internet in this this new world, yeah. which creates this interesting kind of conflict of character. I guess what the setup is it's a story for kids, right? Like any kids movie where uh, it's it's almost like it's almost like your friend, best friend moving away, you know. And there's yeah. nothing nothing you can do about it, and they're gonna go do their thing, and you're gonna do your thing, and that's okay. And that's that's a real complex, like emotional hill to climb for a sequel to Wreck It Ralph, which right. was was a story about a kid about a guy who was misunderstood, like who people think I'm a bad guy and really I'm a good guy. That's yeah. pretty easy. This one's pretty tough, and and it really it, it pushes that goalpost far away. Well, it, it's it's a complex topic, but also it just takes forever to get there. By the time. Yeah. We see what the, what this real conflict is. Like I, I was already so checked out uh, of the movie. I was just, when is this going to be over? Um, and and it's a weird direction to go because as a sequel, you want to expand the universe, which they did by going to the internet. But then they they introduce this weird conflict between two people who struck up this really brilliant friendship. So I, it's like I would have rather have seen them both take on some new conflict, like as a team, rather than each other be the conflict. Yeah, because they're a great team. Like, Vanellope and Wreck-It Ralph, like, they have a lot of chemistry and they work really well together, especially following the first film. It should have, I felt like, just kind of picked a direction. Either make the main conflict, we have to work together to fix Vanellope's game or else she doesn't have to have a home and we have to come overcome the perils of the internet to do it. Or make it, hey, uh, Sugar Rush is going to get hauled off and Vanellope's excited about where she's going and, and Ralph has to deal with it. Like, pick one, you know? Yeah, but it, it yeah. tries to do two and that's where it really get stuck is right in the middle of that second act when you get that pivot because it feels like hey 
things are kind of wrapping up at the first conflict. They're, they're raising the money. They're making it work. And that's that's where it really starts to get sluggish is, is that shift into the second second story. And I'm not sure why they thought that was a great idea. I guess they wanted to have a little bit more depth than the first one. But if you're going to have depth, you have to have the 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 world to back it up and, and it can't just be a lot of a lot of pop culture references yeah like, i was you have I, to have I was gonna say that the exact same thing is that amidst this kind of complex conflict is a star wars reference a person uh an internet reference a meme a, a princess sure. you know it's it, it's sloppy yeah and disney did their due diligence when it came to giving brand re, like reference to brands pinterest actually supra- plays a surprising role in this movie uh, eBay is tremendous. Amazon and Google are both relevant. Uh, Wikipedia is in this, and like not n- not just like oh, there's a name on a thing. I mean like actual physical structures that the characters pass over or or walk on top of, like things they interact with in the world, and that's all great. But when it comes to putting up a viral video, that goes to a website called BuzzTube, which doesn't yeah. exist. And it's like and- I don't know why you couldn't, or or like the search engine is knows more i'm like why couldn't you get google like what was the problem there well, did you not want to pay the licensing since, fee or what well especially since um like youtube there is a youtube logo in there and there is a google yes. logo in there so i'm like mm-hmm. why aren't um so, I, know. I don't know maybe they maybe they didn't want to maybe they would feel feel like it would be too much free advertising or something right. and i would feel that way if so much of the plot didn't center around ebay <laughs> but it does uh yeah. Totally and does. that is also like I don't want to say push to the side, but certainly push to the side at times by the incredibly uh, self-referential uh, Disney references. Because at one point they go to ohmydisney.com, which I don't know if is real, but if it is, that'd be great. Uh, great branding, Disney. Yeah. My God, the Disney in, in this thing is so gratuitous, and it scares the hell out of me because it's such a visual re- visual representation of how much Disney owns. Star Wars, yeah. Marvel, yeah, all the Disney princesses. Like they just they go over everything. They got characters. They got C three PO here and Groot's over here, voiced by Anthony Daniels and 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 Vin Diesel. Like I, and they got stormtroopers and they're running around. Like, my God, like Disney Disney knows what they're about and they're not afraid to show it off. Um, that was wild. Yeah, that it, it was really interesting to see the Star Wars stuff because Star Wars has always like you, you just couldn't get it in in most films. So so it's nice. It's kind of funny to see it because maybe people take it a little less seriously. Because you know I'm sure there were some there was nerd rage about oh my god C3PO's be, he's being he's not being respected. He's just a gimmick in this film. So hopefully yeah. that'll help people not take it quite so seriously. Yeah. I, I I was something something that surprised me in this movie. I feel like the characters have really shifted from the first movie, and I get it's a sequel. Obviously, characters change. I understand, but like some of the some of the things the characters did in the movie, some of their motivations just felt out of line with who they were in the first film, which feels right. strange. I I didn't understand why Ralph is is trying so hard to raise money for Vanellope by putting himself on the internet in in, in goofy videos and and. He works so hard to get all this done, and then when he's upset, she wants to go to a different place. She's like, "Don't don't talk to me anymore. You're not a good friend." I'm like, "Really? Come on! <laughs> Clearly, yeah. he's a good friend. He raised yeah. thirty four thousand dollars or whatever. Uh, like, is that is that really a problem? You guys did that whole thing in the first movie. He he saved your game. Like that was a whole thing. Like, and and suddenly it's you're the bad guy, and and I don't need you anymore. I didn't get why Vanellope." didn't want to be in her game anymore. I'm like, you're literally the princess of Sugar Rush. That's the big reveal at the end of the first game. Yeah. That you, the whole game is for you. Like, and that doesn't matter. Um, that's That stuff is really something. And, and I, don't, I don't know how to feel about it. I, I guess, you know, people get older and that's the story here for kids who watch the first one and return to this. I'm probably just overanalyzing. I'd say I'm definitely overanalyzing it. But. Yeah, and, you know, they wanted something for everyone. They wanted things for the kids. They wanted a more complex plot for the adults. And you just kind of get kind of a mishmash of of gimmicks and pandering. That it's true. In the, that in the end doesn't really work for me. Yeah, and, and I get, like like I said, the, the first one is very niche, and I get it. Like, you can't just do the video game thing again. You, you could for me, and it'd be great. But, like, you want to make money. I think there's a big reason the Disney princesses were featured in the trailer was to attract like a female audience because I'm sure the first one mostly trended male. Um, I think that's also relevant in the title, which I want to talk about for a second. 
why is this called Ralph Breaks the Internet? Because it was never... I mean, I thought for a while it was Wreck-It Ralph 2, but never in the film is it called Wreck-It Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet. It's just Ralph Breaks the Internet, the logo. That's it. That's right. all. Why, why would they do that? You got, you got a theory? So a couple. I mean, first of all, uh, he does kind of break, like literally break the internet. But yes. it's, it's, a re- it's a reference to the, the Kim Kardashian thing from a couple years ago where it was like Kim breaks the internet because she was, I don't know, doing some nude photos or something. Yeah. Like that, that's what I, and, and since then there have been, you know, so-and-so breaks the internet has been like a thing. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes some, there's an incredible video or post that does like, you know, bring down a site because of how much traffic is, but it's mostly exaggerated and mostly just like clickbait. A a few minutes before we started recording this episode, I was on Twitter and I saw Amanda Bynes is breaking the internet. So that's a thing. Yeah, exactly. I I think it's also to help, yeah, push it away from the, from the first one and and let people know, Hey, you don't have to have seen the first one to get this, which you don't. It it does. It does a very good job of kind of giving you a a real quick kind of in, in world recap from the first one. And you're on your way. Like you're not, you're not too stuck in it, but man, I gotta be honest, this movie at least for me, and I don't want to get too far into spoilers, but did you feel like, like I did, it kind of ends on a down note? I don't know. It didn't end quite as cheerfully as the first one did. And I, I know I, sh- I, can't com- I, can- I can't criticize a movie for what it isn't. I can only criticize it for what it is. But it was like, I walked out of this movie, maybe I was just disappointed by the plot, but like, really? I just didn't I don't know. care. I, I didn't by feel the time very it happy. Was over. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was, I was just kind of over it. Like, this is how, uh, did you stay for the end credits scene? Uh, was there one like at the end of the credits? I think there was. Yes. I saw the mid credit scene, which I actually thought was pretty funny. I I was surprised at how much I enjoyed that, but I didn't see post credits now. Yeah. I, I didn't stay for it either because that's how much I wanted to go (laughs) in the theater. Yeah. Nobody else did either. The whole theater cleared out. Yeah. I looked it up. Yes. There is a a credit scene. I'm not staying for it. I'm leaving Mm. because I'm not. Not worth it. And also, just it seems somewhat antiquated that the uh, that they just wouldn't know about the internet, which like it hasn't been around for near thirty years now. Mm. Um, to, to put a bow on this thing, because I think yeah. we should probably start wrapping up. Sure, just sure. real quick, I, I want to talk about just one more time some of the things we actually liked. Like let's let's you know sandwich this here. Uh, sure, uh, sure. I, I again, I was a big fan of. The way they, they kind of anthropomorphize that we said the internet yeah. and, and how they made all of that look. The voice acting was great. Uh, a lot of the humor was really good. That Disney princess bit in the trailer kind of comes around again at, at, towards the end of the film, and all of that is good stuff, albeit a little masturbatory. Uh, it, like just a lot of fun, and that stuff was all good. But man, trying trying to cram two stories into one here was a real hurt. What do you got? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I really enjoyed the performances. Uh, you know, I thought uh, Sarah Silverman and uh, John C. Riley were, were good, and the new characters, Gal Gadot, uh, Bill Hader, and a slew of other cameos were were fine. Yeah, I, I enjoyed them. Uh, I guess to wrap this whole thing up, Andy, would you recommend Ralph Breaks the Internet? Ah, uh, so it's <laughs> overall, I would I would say no, unless you're if you're a huge fan of the first one and you just kind of want to see. What happens in in the follow up? Uh, it's probably for you. If you haven't seen the first one, I would I would skip this. There's a lot out in theaters. There's going to be even more out soon as we're approaching Oscar season. So I would save your books and save your time for that. Which I also have have a question. Th- we're obviously going to get Wreck It Ralph three. Oh yeah, with this much money, we have to, right? Which is yeah. surprising because I definitely thought this was the last one. I I, I was like, well, they're not doing any more after this. Um, mm-hmm. Surely we will. And and my, my prediction for Wreck It Ralph three before I get to my recommendation will be something along the lines of Ralph gets a girlfriend. Ralph finds some big brutish girl character yeah. and is like, I'm crazy about her. Duh. And and then that'll be. That's that's my long yeah. shot prediction for Wreck-It Ralph. He's got to break something though, because that's what he does. So, you know, <laughs> Wreck-It wreck Ralph, it, right? But, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so we'll my, see where that goes. My recommendation. Uh, I'm kind of in the same boat, and I hate to say that because the first one, no lie, I went out and bought that Blu-ray the day it came out because I liked the first one so much. Uh, I loved, I, I especially loved, and we didn't mention this, the short in front of the first one. Paper Man is my favorite Disney short ever. And this one didn't even have yeah, it's one, so, so it's that's so good, a bummer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wait for it to come to Netflix. It's it, like if it's if, you, if you're at home and you got a couple hours and you really like the first one, 
go for it. Otherwise, don't don't spend your money. There's a lot of other good stuff coming out in Oscar season. Go see something better. You'll probably enjoy it more. Right. And that's take the Ralph kids. breaks the internet. Take the yeah, sure. Take the kids. Why not? Take the parents. Sure. Like they'll they'll get a laugh out of it. Uh, a, a bitter end to a to a, well a bitter middle I should say uh, to a story that I I very much enjoyed the beginning of. And yeah. we should move on to our death of cinema segment. You posed this one, Andy. You mind uh, taking the reins on it? This is the death of cinema. And so, <laughs> and so uh, what we're going to talk about is uh, an article I read over the weekend which said, is J.K. Rowling in danger of becoming the next George Lucas? In that um, sh- these prequel films, the Fantastic Beast series, of which there should be five, or they're planning five films, um, is not off to a, gr- a great start. Um, this uh, Crimes of Grindelwald has made less money than uh, its predecessor, and they're worried that it, it, it may be slowing. And the the film itself has a number of issues, and that are reminiscent of George Lucas and the problems he had with the Star Wars prequels. Uh, so, Zach, what do you what are your thoughts? Uh, real quick, this article is out of IndieWire. I definitely encourage you to go read it. it. It's it's really good stuff. You obviously don't don't stop the podcast and go read it or anything. But I mean, just in the future, if you happen to pass by, um, man, there's a lot in common with J.K. Rowling. Rowling, how, how are we doing for this podcast? Rowling is um, that Rowling? Rowling? I'll go with that. Rowling, yeah, go ahead. Rowling, whatever. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, I won't JK be consistent. Rowling, yeah, J.K. Rowling and George Lucas, and it's not necessarily in the way they're steering their characters. But in like a broad ideological stance, the way they're staying attached to their kind of IPs and driving it. And we're finding out as audience members, we may not like the way it's going. And that's that's a really frightening thing for both the creator and us uh, who are watching. Why do you think that is? Let's let's start with, I guess, Lucas, right? That's the baseline here. Mm-hmm. What did George Lucas do with the first three Star Wars films? What did he do with the prequel films? And where did he go wrong? You know, well, with the original trilogy uh, starting in, in 1977, you know, he created an incredible world. You know, I still enjoy going back and watching the original Star Wars because it's it's not playing to anyone. He's not pandering to an audience. He's not thinking of the fanboys. He's just trying to create a really unique and engrossing world. And in Empire Strikes Back, he expanded that world and he expanded the mythology and the characters. And then the third one just kind of wraps it up. Uh, but then when he went back to the, pre- the prequels, there was too much of, you know, Star Wars was so big by then, it was like this huge IP and merchandising thing that it's like okay we got to have something for the kids to sell toys and we got to have these fancy lightsabers and we got to have a ton of cgi and we got to have a million things going on and it's it was all you know marketing driven and also they really pigeonhole themselves into it's well it has to tie into the original trilogy and you know remember that lamp that we saw on the millennium falcon (laughs) it's got it's got to have an origin and it it relied too much on the original instead of trying to create an original story. And we're getting starting to get a little bit of that from J.K. Rowling as well. It's worth noting, Lucas directed the first Star Wars film. He did episode four. He did not direct episode five and six. Those were, those were different people. He then went on to direct one, two, and three. He like just grabbed that wheel and took it right back. And on the one hand, I get it. If you're returning to your series and you're returning to this beloved thing, as the creator, you want to be attached to that. Certainly. I totally understand that. And, and Rowling rolling isn't i'm just going to alternate isn't yeah. <laughs> directing the fantastic beast films but she is writing them and she is not a screenwriter she's a book writer like that is where her strength is and there's a big difference between the two sure and it's it, it, there's certainly a way you can adapt them that that happens all the time widows last week was adapted from a book like that's not to say you can't adapt a story of course you can but i, I it does start to feel like in a weird way, whereas George Lucas was hanging on to the thread that was Star Wars, she's kind of losing it with Harry Potter. I feel like she's she's losing the th- or, or Fantastic Beasts would say she's losing the things that really made Harry Potter so enjoyable. I feel. What do you think? Right. Well, what are what are those things? Do you think? Sure. More uh, specifically, one. I, I think you you stick with a a very core cast of characters. Specifically, Harry Potter was 
one character you really focused on. And then the other ones kind of dance in and out. You get characters who are more important, like Hermione Granger or Ron Weasley. Uh, characters who are less important, like uh, extemporaneous you know, uh, characters that come in and out of the books, like Cedric Diggory or, or I, I don't know. Sure. Um, in this, rather than focus exclusively on Newt Scamander, she's really bouncing around. Everybody's got a story and a tale, and everybody's got something going on. And that was a thing in Harry Potter, but that was built up over the case of thousands of pages and eight and seven books. Like, whereas right. this, you don't have that luxury. You got to cram this stuff into 90 minutes, two hours. And while you've got five five movies, it, she's not spreading it out that well, you know? It, 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 a fine example, in Fantastic Beasts 2, we talked about this last week, in the case of, of, of Jacob and Queenie, right? Yeah. Rather than have them get together in one movie and then break up in another, spread that out. You, you have five movies to play with, right? Like, move that around a little bit. Have some focus in one movie, have some focus in another, but instead it just feels like we're driving this ship a thousand miles an hour and everybody's got to be involved. She needs to dial it back and, and, and kind of spread that out what do you think so one of the things that i really liked about the first fantastic beast is that it took place in the wizarding world but it didn't feel like it was so connected to harry potter you know it just it exists in the universe and the same way that you know the marvel cinematic universe manages to tell lots of different stories within one kind of realm and in Crimes of Grindelwald, we lose that, and it it starts to get, oh, well, we got to see Dumbledore, and we got to reference the Lestranges and Nicholas Flamel. You know, it starts to really tie into the Harry Potter lore, and, and, and I think that's the big mistake, because when you think of, you know, the Star Wars stuff that has been really successful, like the, you know, some of the video games, Knights of the Old Republic, or the, the Secret Apprentice storyline... These things work so well because they're not connected to the original Star Wars at all outside of things like lightsabers and the Force and the Jedi, those kinds of larger mythologies. So they exist within the universe, but they're not tied to the, like, the core trilogy. And I think that's where you begin to have some real problems when you start to try and plug everything in to you know, make it fit into the original films. I agree. Completely supplementary works. One one that you didn't mention in there, but I, I would probably put on that list is something like Star Wars The Clone Wars. It was like eight seasons of a show. And yeah. you don't have to see a single episode of that to enjoy the movies. You're not missing anything. And I'm not saying you have to see Fantastic Beasts to enjoy Harry Potter, but man, it sure feels like it because they want them to feel like the same kind of thing. Yeah. And you're, you're missing that thread. I saw, I saw a Reddit comment uh, a couple weeks ago about this when we were talking about reviewing the movie. Where somebody said they shouldn't have called this movie the Fantastic Beast. They should have called it the Wizarding World or something like that. Because you've really lost the thread of why you're calling it Fantastic Beast. When you think of Harry Potter, yes, he was a character, but most importantly, he was a young person. He was a student. He was a child. He was learning about magic. He was learning about this world as we were learning. That was part of your experience. Look, Fantastic Beasts. How many Fantastic Beasts are actually in the movie outside of Newt's suitcase, which was featured for like 10 minutes of, of the last film? I mean, it's barely in there. Yeah. You're so focused on Grindelwald and, and the battle for, for magic and pure bloods and, and, and all that. Like, <laughs> yeah, you really, yeah, you really lose the thread. And it's like, you gotta, you gotta rein that back in. You've got five movies here. Like, it's not just one after another. You can, you can control that burn a little bit. You don't have to try to do so much. And Rowling, I think she's rolling. She's used to writing books. She, she hasn't done this a lot. And, and like, that's, that's where you really struggle. And I wish they had some assistant writers or director who'd come in with a red pen and go, nope, I'm sorry. I get you're the person. And we got to do it this way because this is what's this is entertaining on screen versus on right. the page, and nobody's there to do that. Yeah, that, that and that's ultimately what that article um, argued was that J.K. Rowling needs to not be afraid to hand off creative control to other film writers or other creative people to help create better stories uh, for film. Yeah, and and I get it's tough to do. I would never want to be that person to sit down with the author and go, this is great, but we're not going to use this. But Disney did that. And Force Awakens was pretty huge. And and Star Wars is maybe taking a break now, but they were willing to step back from George Lucas and go, look, I'm sorry. We need to consider like the greater kind of thing here of, of your property and where it can go versus where you'd like it to go. George yeah. Lucas wanted midichlorians. 
that doesn't work, you know? Like, sometimes you can lose the thread, and it's important to have people from the outside who can look at it with a fresh set of eyes and say, hey, maybe we should try this instead. Yeah, I, I, what I was going to say, th- there are some... there. You can find some sketches of what George Lucas had in mind for episode 789, and it's an absolute light nightmare. And it, it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's bizarre, mind-blowing, like, what were you even thinking? You know, it just makes no sense. So I, I'm really glad that that didn't happen, and... Yeah, it, it helps to take a step back to let other creative, you know, talented people help you do this prequel thing. Because as we've seen, it's really hard, especially when you have a really, you know, passionate fan base. To kind of put a bow on this, I don't want to make it sound like I'm defending the idea of greenlighting five films in a series before the second one's out. Um, but in the case of this, I, I really do wish they'd have a little bit more patience with it. Slow it down a little bit, all right? It doesn't have to be 86 characters running around, everybody's doing a different thing. Like, I, I, I miss that simplicity of something like Harry Potter. You know, it was simple. You followed one kid and his two friends. And really, it was just the one kid. The two friends were just kind of there. And that was the movie. Like, I wish Newt Scamander was treated in the same way. Instead... I feel like he's kept at arm's length and you never really get to know the guy, which makes it tough to connect with him and therefore really get into the plot of the movie. And and J.K. Rowling, she's got all that kicking around in her head and she knows how it works, but we don't. And we need somebody to translate that for us. Yeah, and and especially it needs to relate to people who have not seen the Harry Potter films. I think that's, if, if I hadn't seen those, if I hadn't read the book series, I think I would be pretty lost in the most recent film. Um, but but there is there is a light at the end of this tunnel. So the third film has, has not been written yet. I, I was listening to an interview with um, Catherine Waterston and Eddie Redmayne, and they don't even know what the, what the third film has uh, going on because it hasn't been written yet. Um, all they know is that it might be going to Rio de Janeiro, uh, and I know that each film is supposed to take place in in another big city around the world. Um, so there is hope that they can take the lessons learned from the last two films, see what's not working, and try and steer the ship correctly. Yeah, and I guess we'll see what happens. I would hope at the very least there is a... I mean, there has to be a broad storyline written, right? I, there, there was no, I, I doubt somebody sat down J.K. Rowling and said, hey, five movies, and she went, sure. Like, I'm, I'm sure she said, this is the kind of the whole story I want to tell. This is the way I want to do it. But looking at it, like in the rear view, it doesn't seem that way. It really does seem like you're writing them one at a time. And while that does offer opportunity to turn the wheel and straighten things out, it also just makes it feel a little clumsy. So hopefully yeah. things will work out. Hopefully somebody will come along and be an assistant writer or, or an executive editor or something on, on the next Fantastic Beast and kind of rain rolling in because I love her to death. But man, you, you got a big imagination and you just can't tackle it all in two hours 15. Sure. All right, and we should move on to our last film. Andy, you've graciously agreed to take the the summary on this one. I I, I can't wait to hear what you've got because <laughs> okay. I, I I wouldn't know what to say. Please take it away. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I'm the distractor with a little story. People can't get enough of them because well they connect the stories to themselves, I suppose. And we all love hearing about ourselves. So long as the people in the stories are us, but not us. This will tell the tale. So this is the new Coen Brothers film. That's it's a western-themed anthology. It's a set of six stories, all completely unrelated, um, and they're all set in the West. They have a lot of. They're very thematic. They have a lot going on in them. Uh, Just to touch on what they are, we get a story about a singing cowboy, a bank robber, a traveling sideshow, a gold prospector, uh, an organ train, and uh, a haunted carriage ride, uh, (laughs) for lack. Um, But that's kind of the layout. Um, Zach, what did you think? Oh, man, I thought this movie was cool. (laughs) 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 I was was really into it, and I I, want to hear what you think, so I'll keep this short, but uh, the Coen brothers have always had this fantastic, um, I, I want to use a word other than nihilistic, but I can't think of one, nihilistic look at the world. And in these six short stories that are almost more like fables, 
they 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 tell tales in the way in a way only the Cohen brothers can, and I love it. And I really want to dig into why that is. I'm not sure how I'm going to talk about it because I, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here. Andy, what did you think? Um, so I've seen this twice. Uh, the first time I watched it, I, I was uh, with some friends and we weren't completely paying attention, so I wanted to make sure I gave it gave it a second viewing. And I Good really wish I really wish I had paid better attention the, the first time because I, I really enjoyed these stories. There's a lot there. And like you said, they, they play like fables. There's there's lessons or there's a lot to think about after each story. And we, we get that um, we get that after the first one because the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is the very first story and it's kind of short. And, um, you know, Tim Blake Nelson plays a singing cowboy and he kind of sums up the uh, moral of the story in the end. And then we're kind of set up for the rest of the of the stories. We know that there's going to be some things to think about, um, but they all they all have incredible violence, incredible uh, dark humor. They're, they're really funny in, in places. And like you said, uh, they're deeply philosophical um, some more more than others. Uh, but overall, I, I really enjoyed all the stories, some way more than others, but it's good stuff. I think, I don't know how you feel about this. We probably should have talked about it before we started recording. I think maybe the best way to talk about this is talk about each individual story and then how it all ties together. What do you think about that? Or should we just kind of do it broad? Do you have a, what's the best uh, way to talk about I a movie was, with six short, short films <laughs> in it? You know, that that's what I've been struggling with uh, all weekend. I, I was wanted to keep it more broad because there okay. are, it's five or six. I can't remember. Six, yeah. Uh, okay, let's do that then. I, I love the way this film ad- addresses audience. Maybe that's a bad place to start. It's fine. I love the way the, this film addresses audience. <laughs> Tim Blake Nelson, as, as, as the titular Buster Scruggs in the first story, he looks directly at the camera. He talks to us. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't offer like meta commentary about the way the film is going to go, but he talks about his world and his life. He holds up a wanted poster with his face on it. He addresses us, the audience. That never happens again in the whole movie. It's just at the beginning. And then arguably at the end, but in kind of a a cheeky, fun way. Uh, The the second story, uh, Near Algodonas, James Franco plays a bank robber. He's he's not exactly about it. In fact, he's awfully quiet, which is fascinating. And then in our third story, we get a, a very quiet tale where almost everything is shown, but not told. Yeah. Do you want <laughs> well, so, well, so, to talk about all six? So yeah, part of what I think makes this such a good set of, of stories and, and little short films is that it's really utilizing film as a visual medium. So much in, in movies today, we get exposition. I mean, this is, was part of the problem with uh, Crimes of Grindelwald. Characters talking, characters telling you about what's happening instead of just visually um, dis- displaying and I feel like, like you said, that the third story about the tra- traveling sideshow um, definitely highlights that. And and like I said, it's I mean that is when it gets real dark in that, in that story. Uh, but there's a lot to think about afterwards. And what I like is that there's a lot that I actually haven't figured out. Like I don't know what it means. Like in the gold prospector story, I don't know what the owl is supposed to represent. <laughs> I I know that there's uh, you know kind of an environment. <clears throat> excuse me, environmental message. Um, in that story but there's this owl and it keeps popping up and I know it's important but I don't really know what it's about and that's what I love I love that there's this complex symbolism that's going to make you think after the film sure um let's see story I just want to kind of get through a broad a broad cover here story four uh the story called the Galaga no I'm sorry all gold canyon starring two people uh, yes. which is which is really cool and and another very quiet story uh not a whole lot of dialogue mostly monologue very mm-hmm. interesting story five the longest of all of them by by a wide margin i was actually timing this a bit sure. uh the uh the gal who got rattled fantastic performances all around but it felt like it dragged a little bit for me mm-hmm. and then the final story uh the mortal remains the carriage ride a, a beautiful bow on top of an already incredible package where yes. kind of the, 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 the meta approach to the story from the first story, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and our third story in which things were shown and not told because there's hardly any dialogue in story three. Story six is the opposite. Everything is told and not shown. Everything takes mm-hmm. place inside of a carriage. Fascinating. And I don't know right. what any of it means. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, um... Well, let me back up a little bit. So yeah. the uh, the 
the gold what's the gold prospector story called all gold canyon yeah all gold starring canyon. tom waits as as the prospector yes that's one of the things i wanted to touch on so tom waits who's a, a singer entertainer occasional actor uh, plays this very aged gold prospector um and this story is in really incredible and part of it is the 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 music uh, in in all of these but especially in this one um it uses this old hymn called uh, mother mccree and Tom Waits, he kind of hums and sings this throughout the entire story. And then the score also takes w- that hymn and really embellishes. And it's it's really uh, important. And I think that that has a lot to do with the story itself. I looked at the lyrics, and, and it's like an ode to one's aged mother is what uh, Mother Bacree is about. Um, but it was just an incredible performance by him. Um, like you said, in The Girl Who Got Rattled, a really good performance uh, by Zoe Kazan, who we saw in The Big Sick earlier this year. Um, but man, yeah, as far as what things are, are about, um, uh, one, one of the things that we've seen from the, the Coens is this kind of theme of fate and how it's kind of, you know, your destiny is kind of out of control. Uh, we saw this in No Country for Old Men where that third act, it takes a lot of wild turns. Um, it's set up to go a certain way and then it, it kind of subverts all of your expectations. And we get a lot of that in this set of films as, as well in a number of the stories. They're, they're set up, uh, like I said, they set you up and to go a certain way and to have certain expectations and then things don't turn out like you think they're going to uh, a lot of the time. Yeah, that's that's that bit of, of nihilism that I don't know how much we can dig into, but especially with the, the gore and the violence, which is no stranger to uh, uh, the Coen brothers, or, or the Western setting, which is gorgeously filmed, by the way. Almost every frame of this movie is, is beautiful. Um, man, they they really do lay on, uh, especially in the Old West, uh, you, you can get murdered at any time. For, like, anything. It reminded yeah. me in a lot of ways, in an odd way, of, of the stupid Seth MacFarlane comedy, A Million Ways to Die in the West, because it really feels that way. Like, you people just die. Adults, like, they just, you know, they're living their lives one day, and then they're dead. And, like, there's that weird Cohen like, message there that, like, nothing matters, or maybe every... I don't know. I haven't really figured it out yet. I'm still unpacking it, but, like, I, I, I don't know how to take it but that's definitely a running theme throughout all of this capping beautifully in story six with a really incredible monologue uh from from an englishman who who, who almost looks at the camera and explains to you why right. they're telling the stories the way they are which is a fascinating conclusion to an already great movie yeah and p- what's interesting about that is like you said that it is all dialogue but there's still they're not explicitly saying what's going on. It's a, it definitely takes you some figuring out and there's a lot of, um, just, just kind of clever wordplay. You know, it's, you have to read between the lines to really understand kind of that, that final story. Yeah. I I wanted to talk about, um, before we get too far out of the weeds, I guess we're probably, probably starting to turn out of this, this movie, but (laughs) I want to talk about performances in a lot of ways, the cast in this movie reminded me of uh, a man whose name I normally don't speak, Terrence Malick, uh, <laughs> in his film, The Thin Red Line. Because when The Thin Red Line came out, it has what is now considered an incredible cast. But back then, a lot of these actors were young. Nobody really knew them. They had TV work, just to rattle off a few, because I pulled up the list. Uh, sure. George Clooney, Jim Caviezel, Nick Nolte, Sean Penn, Woody Harrelson, Adrian Brody, John Cusack, John Travolta, John C. Riley, Jared Leto, Thomas Jane. Like, some really cool people. Tim Blake Nelson was in that movie. Really cool people. And at the time, a lot of them were really young and wasn't a big deal, but it turned out, like, over time, a lot of them turned out to be tremendous. That's how this movie felt. There's a lot of parts in this movie that I watched. I mean, there's a lot of big people, too. Uh, Tim yeah, Blake Nelson. Uh, I, I, I struggle to think of more right now, even though I have the Le- list up Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. Clancy uh, Brown, I don't know, James Gleason. Franco, Stephen Root, Brendan Gleeson. There's a lot of people in this movie who are TV actors, who have been extras in smaller movies, who I've never seen, who were stunning, who deliver yeah. monologues and speeches that I, 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 I'm like, I can't wait to see what they do next. One of the most outstanding roles for me was in the third story, The Wingless Thrush, uh, played by, uh, sorry, Meal Ticket is the name of the story, uh, played by Harry Melling who is an mm. artist in the movie uh, with no arms and no legs. Uh, Harry Melling is, was Dudley in the Harry Potter films. 
stunning right. performance by this kid. I was like, I can't wait to see what he does. I couldn't believe how much I liked him in this movie. Like, incredible stuff. And I don't know if that's a testament to the Coen's ability to get, to get a good performance out of somebody or just the script and the setting and the character. I, I don't know, but, like, really good work. And I hope a lot of these people go on to do bigger projects if they can find them because this one's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned uh, was these landscapes. And so this was released on, you know, on Netflix, but they're planning to release this in theaters for it to have a theatrical release. And, you know, I was thinking with a lot of these really incredible landscapes, I was like, this needs to be seen on the, on the big screen. You want to be, you'll be much more like engulfed in the, in the old West or in like in this Valley that the gold prospector uh, is in. Uh, on a larger screen so that that's kind of the the only downfall of uh, just seeing it on kind of your tv is you miss out on these larger than life landscapes it's true and you're not going to get the same sound you get out, out you know for the music which is great like you mentioned out of your home speakers unless you have some rad setup um it, you, you're not going to get that quality and i did think that a lot almost every every wide landscape shot in this i thought man i really wish i was watching this on a the theater and if it comes to theaters I'd like to revisit. I really would. You and I should go find a screening somewhere. And yeah, go check no, it out. I, yeah, I, I would watch it again. I was about to say the the same thing uh, that I definitely would like to see this on on the big screen. But to just bring it back around to Netflix for a moment, I was talking about this with a friend earlier. I think being this movie in particular, this Coen Brothers film premiering on Netflix may not hurt it as much as I initially thought. When you tell me a Coen Brothers movie is going to be on Netflix, I think. Why? Uh. How? Why God? <laughs> like, why the Coen brothers? They deserve so much better. But this one being essentially six short films kind of makes sense. Like, in a lot, like, I, because I ended up, I, you know, I was out of town for the, Thanksgiving. I ended up watching three of these stories and taking a break. And then I picked it back up later and watched the other three. There's perfect start, starting and stopping points for all of it. You can watch one and sit on it if you want and, and then pick another one up later. You can skip around in chapters. Like, it really gives you the ability to take it in one bit at a time. And I think that works because if this had come out in theaters, I think a lot of people would have panned it. They would have been like, "I, it's not traditional. It doesn't follow a traditional three-act structure at yeah, all. Yeah, you're right. Like, it, it, it breaks a lot of norms in how a film normally works. And I wonder how that would have hurt it had it just premiered in theaters. Coming out on Netflix, it skips all that. And it gets to just be its own unique Coen Brothers project. I really dug it that way. Yeah, and you're right that the because uh, it is long. It's it's two hours and fifteen minutes. So yep. if if you break it up in, into its individual parts, it's much more palatable than if you had to sit through all of them in a theater. That would probably be a lot, especially with you know previews. You're looking at a solid two and a half hours at least. Mm-hmm. I there's a lot more I want to say about this movie, but I don't want to get too in the weeds. I feel like we've done a pretty okay job of covering it. Andy, any any, any other thoughts before we wrap up? Um, no, I think I'm ready to wrap up. Uh, would you recommend the Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. You know, it's, it's a dark Western theme. There's, there's lots to unpack in there. Like I said, it'll really get you thinking the, you know, it's on Netflix. So if you have that, you can, you you already have it. Um, you can break it up. You can watch it with friends. I, I don't know, but it's, I really enjoyed it. I think it's definitely one of the best things uh, of the year. And I mean, some of the stories are really are really good. They're really heartbreaking uh, in a couple of places. Um, so yeah, I would definitely recommend it to uh, everyone. I am in the same boat. Uh, do not walk, run to your couch and check out this movie on Netflix. <laughs> it is really, really good. It's one of my favorite things I've seen on Netflix thus far. It is a bummer. Other streaming services don't have it, but if you're like 98% of America and you have Netflix, check it out. That's not an accurate statistic. Uh, if you want to do what I did and watch it in threes, you totally can. If you just want to check it out and see what it's about, I would encourage you to watch the first two bits. Obviously, I'd encourage you to watch the whole thing, but don't just watch the first one and stop watching because you may not come back. Watch the first two. Because they really do set an interesting precedent for what's to come. And by the end of the second story, I was like hook, line, and sinker. I want to watch more. And then I fell asleep watching the end of the third bit. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 really cool. And the fact that it's so accessible to anybody means you can listen to it. You, you can watch it right now, right after you finish listening to this podcast. And what we're going to do next, uh, uh, next week, you can you can go watch it right now. And, and, and you should right after that. So the Ballad it, it of Buster does, Scruggs. 
right. It last thing it does kind of it does build because you know the first two stories are a little short and then they start to get longer and then a little bit more complex. So there is kind of a climactic point in the middle and then kind of almost like an epilogue at the end. So there is also an argument to just watching it straight through, but you don't have to, and that's the beauty of Netflix, right? But I would encourage you to do that if you can. <laughs> I wish I had done that. Um, man, what a cool movie. Like Again, non-traditional, different, original, and I, I loved it. It was really neat. Yeah. Well, that about wraps our show for the week. Uh, color me impressed, Andy. We managed to get through this whole thing. I think it went pretty okay. I liked, I liked it more yeah, than last week, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want to find out what we're doing next, we'll tell you right now. We're going to watch The Favorite next week, which we're both fairly excited about. I think Andy may be more than me, uh, yes. which is okay because it does look like a really cool movie. Uh, we're also going to check out Green Book. I know maybe not so many of you are excited about that. It looks a little dry, but hey, that's what Bold Cinema is all about. Dry, dry movies. <laughs> dry. Uh, and I want to see what Viggo Mortensen's up to. I miss the guy. He's great as Aragorn. I'm sure he'll be fine in this. And Mahershala <laughs> Ali, Academy Award winner for Best Actor last year. If you want to get involved with the show, tell us what you thought. Let us know how you felt. Uh, the show would not be possible without you, and we appreciate everything you do. Email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com. Uh, throw us a like on Facebook. Subscribe to the show if you haven't yet. Get your friends to subscribe. Send them a hot Spotify link. I don't care, <laughs> but get involved somehow. We love Commandeer doing this their stuff. phones. Like yeah, I it's do. true. Take, take their phone. Make them subscribe. Get those downloads up. It'll be great. <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening. From all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.